Chapter Seven of Olive. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Olive by Dinah Maria Craik. Chapter Seven. Looking back on a calm and uneventful childhood, and by childhood we mean the seven years between the babyhood of five and the dignity of teens, it always seems like a cloudy landscape with a few points of view here and there which stand out clearly from the rest. Therein the fields are larger and the sky brighter than any we now behold. Persons, places, and events assume a mystery and importance. We never think of them or hear them named afterwards, but there clings to them something of the strange glamour of the time when we saw men as trees walking. Olive's childhood was passed in the place mentioned by her father, Maryvale, Old Church, in her future life the words, whenever heard, always sounded like an echo of that dreamy time whose sole epochs are birthdays, Christmas days, the first snowdrop found in the garden, the first daisy in the field. Such formed the only chronicle of Olive's childhood. Its earliest period was marked by events which she was too young to notice, troubles which she was too young to feel. They passed over her like storm clouds over a safely sheltered flower only perceived by the momentary shadow which they cast. Once, it was in the first summer at Merivale, the child noticed how pleased everyone seemed, and how papa and mamma, now always together, used to speak more tenderly than usual to her. Elsbee said it was because they were so happy, and that Olive ought to be happy too, because God would soon send her a wee-wee brother. She would find him some day in the pretty cradle which Elsbee showed her. So the little girl went to look there every morning, but in vain. At last her nurse said she need not look there any more, for God had taken away the baby brother as soon as it came. Olive was very much disappointed, and when she went down to her father that day she told him of her trouble, but he angrily sent her away to her nurse. She looked ever after with grief and childish awe on the empty cradle. At last it was empty no longer. She, a thoughtful child of seven, could never forget the impression made when one morning she was roused by the loud pealing of the old church bells, and the maids told her, laughing, that it was in honor of her little brother, come at last. She was allowed to kiss him once, and then spent half her time watching, with great joy and wonderment, the tiny face and touching the tiny hands. After some days she missed him, and after some more Elsby showed her a little heap in the nearest churchyard, saying, that was her baby brother's cradle now. Poor little Olive, her only knowledge of the tie of brotherhood, was these few days of silent watching and the little green mound left behind in the churchyard. From that time there came a gradual change over the household and over Olive's life. No more long, quiet hours after dinner, her father reading, her mother occupied in some light work, or resting on the sofa in delicious idleness, while Olive herself, little noticed, but yet treated with uniform kindness by both, sat on the hearthrug, fondling the sleepy cat, or gazing with vague childish reverie into the fire. No more of the proud pleasure with which, on Sunday afternoons, exalted to her grave papa's knee, she created an intense delight out of what was to him a somewhat formal duty, and said her letters from the large family Bible. These childish joys vanished gradually, she scarce knew how. Her papa she now rarely saw he was so much from home, and the quiet house, wherein she loved to ramble, became a house always full of visitors, her beautiful mamma being the centre of its gaiety. Olive retreated to her nursery and to Elsby, 
and the rest of her childhood was one long, solitary, pensive dream. In that dream was the clear transcript of all the scenes amidst which it passed. The old hall, seated on a rising ground, and commanding views which were really beautiful in their way, considering that Merivale was on the verge of a manufacturing district, bounded by pastoral and moorland country. Those strange furnace-fires, which rose up at dusk from the earth and gleamed all around the horizon, like red fiery eyes open all night long, how mysteriously did they haunt the imaginative child! Then the town, Old Church, how in her afterlife it grew distinct from all other towns, like a place seen in a dream, so real and yet so unreal. There was its castle hill, a little island within a large pool, which had once been a real fortress and moat. Old Elsby contemned alike tradition and reality, until Olive read in her little history of England the name of the place, and how John of Gaunt had built a castle there. And then Elsby vowed it was unworthy to be named the same day with beautiful Stirling. Continually did she impress on the child the glories of her birthplace, so that Olive in afterlife, while remembering her childhood scenes as a pleasant land of earth, came to regard her native Scotland as a sort of dream paradise. The shadow of the mountains where she was born fell softly, solemnly over her whole life, influencing her pursuits, her character, perhaps even her destiny. Yet there was a curious fascination about Old Church. She never forgot it. The two great wide streets, High Street and Butcher Row, intersecting one another in the form of a cross. The two churches, the Old Church, gloomy and Norman, with its ghostly graveyard, and the new church, shining white amidst a pleasant garden cemetery, beneath one of whose flower-beds her baby brother lay. The two shops, the only ones she ever visited, the confectioners, where she stood to watch the yearly fair, and the booksellers, whither she dragged her nurse on any excuse, that she might pour over its incalculable treasures. Above all, there was fixed in her memory the strange aspect the town wore on one day, a coronation day, the grandest gala of her childhood. One king had died and been buried. Olive saw the black-hung pulpit and heard the funeral sermon, awfully thundered forth at night. Another king had been proclaimed, and Olive had gloried in the sight of the bonfires and the roasted sheep. Now the people talked of a coronation day. Simple child. She knew nothing of the world's events or the world's destinies, save that she rose early to the sound of caroling bells, was dressed in a new white frock, and taken to see the town, the beautiful town, smiling with triumphal flower arches and winding processions. How she basked in the merry sunshine, and heard the shouts, and the band playing God Save the King, and felt very loyal, until her enthusiasm vented itself in tears. Such was one of the few links between Olive's early life and the world outside. Otherwise she dwelt, for those seven years of childhood, in a little Eden of her own, whose boundary was rarely crossed by the footsteps of either joy or pain. She was neither neglected nor ill-used, but she never knew that fullness of love on which one looks back in afterlife, saying deprecatingly, and yet sighing the while, "'Ah, I was indeed a spoiled child.' Her little heart was not positively checked in its overflowings, but it had a world of secret tenderness which, being never claimed, expanded itself in all sorts of wild fancies. She loved every flower of the field and every bird in the air. She also, having a passionate fondness for study and reading, loved her pet authors and their characters with a curious individuality. Mrs. Holland stood in the place of some good aunt, and Sandford and Merton were regarded just like real brothers. 
She had no one to speak to about poetry, she did not know there was such a thing in the world, yet she was conscious of strange and delicious sensations, when in the early days of spring she had at length conquered Elspie's fears about wet feet and muddy fields, and had gone with her nurse to take the first meadow ramble. She could not help bounding to pluck every daisy she saw, and when the violets came and the primroses, she was out of her wits with joy. She had never even heard of Wordsworth, yet, as she listened to the first cuckoo note, she thought it no bird but truly a wandering voice. Of Shelley's glorious lyric ode she knew nothing, and yet she never heard the skylark's song without thinking it a spirit of the air, or one of the angels hymning at heaven's gate. And many a time she looked up in the clouds at early morning, half expecting to see that gate open, and wondering whereabouts it was in the beautiful sky. She had never heard of art, yet there was something in the gorgeous sunset that made her bosom thrill, and out of the cloud ranges she tried to form mountains, such as there were in Scotland, and palaces of crystal like those she read of in her fairy tales. No human being had ever told her of the mysterious links that reach from the finite to the infinite, out of which, from the buried ashes of dead superstition, great souls can evoke those mighty spirits, faith and knowledge. Yet she went to sleep every night believing that she felt, nay, could almost see, an angel standing at the foot of her little bed, watching her with holy eyes, guarding her with outspread wings. O oh, childhood, beautiful dream of unconscious poetry, of purity so pure that it knew neither the existence of sin nor of its own innocence, of happiness so complete that the thought, I am now happy, came not to drive away the wayward sprite which never is, but always is to come. Blessed childhood, spent in peace and loneliness and dreams, hidden therein lay the germs of a whole life. End of chapter 7